This is John Halsman, and welcome to our usual Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new era that we find ourselves in. And we're returning to Ukraine as the second phase of the war is just beginning. And as often happens in a war, the war aims on both sides evolve, that what starts uh, the war isn't what ends it, World War I being the most obvious historical example. This is a war that started over the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, and Austria-Hungary wanted redress in the Balkans. And that's sure not where we ended up, which was with the total collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the Romanov Empire in Russia, the Hohenzollern Empire in Germany. All these powers flipped from the scene. And in fact, the Russians and the Austro-Hungarians, who were ostensibly the great powers at loggerheads over what happened with the assassination by the Black Hand, Gavrilo Princip of Franz Ferdinand. Uh, this is not where we ended up. And in fact, both the Romanovs and the Habsburgs running Austria-Hungary no longer existed at the time of the end of the war. That once you draw the sword, as we've said with Bismarck, you roll the dice. And in doing so, the war aims evolve as the war goes on. And, and horribly for war, it assumes an internal logic of its own. And that's why when so many people, mostly wishful thinking European analysts, have said to me, well, surely on May Day, Putin will bring things to a close, as though they've had enough of war and want to go home now. This really belies the reality that wars don't end until one or both sides believe they can no longer win. That when this happens, you have the possibility for negotiation. We hear the word diplomacy as though it was a verb, that we just need to use diplomacy, as though if we waved a magic wand, the structural forces underlying a war simply can be magicked away. And in doing this, we do ourselves a disservice by, frankly, being idiots um, and assuming that what we want is what's going to happen. A basic tenet of realism is that it's these structural forces that must be in line before you actually have a deal. I think of my involvement in the Northern Ireland peace process as a young guy in Washington, and the only way that this came to an end, and this was very clear, whether you talk to David Trimble and the Protestants or Martin McGuinness and Sinn Féin, that it's only when they thought they couldn't win outright victory militarily that both and both sides thought in the long run they could still achieve their political goals only then was the Good Friday Agreement possible. Before then, if one or both sides thought they could win on their own, there was no deal. And this structurally opened my eyes as a realist, and that's indeed the problem now, that by the May Parade Day in, in Russia, the problem is both sides think they can still win. Uh, Vladimir Putin thinks that he can still make progress in the Donbass, and he's adjusted his war aims, and we'll talk about this in a minute, and the Ukrainians have adjusted theirs, that although they're willing to make concessions on joining NATO, they're certainly not willing to make concessions after both their agony and their success about a war that they think they can win in the long run. So let's have a look at why both sides think they can win and then what their war aims are. The Russians think they can win because they've adjusted their war planning. They've learned from the failures of the initial assault. And as we've said, the failures... Were, were pretty obvious. Uh, the plan was way too complicated. It was a three-pronged assault, which the Russian army hasn't pulled off since 1945. They didn't assume that Ukraine was a definable country and would collapse 
uh, they thought they'd get to Kiev in two days and take the place in two weeks. Well, they now know that the Ukrainians will fight heroically and hard for their country. And they didn't think that the West would unveil sanctions in a comprehensive manner as they did. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Well, they now know all that, and they've adjusted their war planning accordingly, but they still think they can win because they've adjusted their planning. They've moved troops away from around Kiev, and they're simply having a one-pronged assault from the Donbass. Well, this solves a whole bunch of problems. One, the plan is simple. Uh, it involves Russian armor and artillery, which are the strengths of Russia, the Russian army traditionally. It involves not having a complicated logistics system, traditionally the weakness of the Russian army, and instead is straightforward from Rostov-on-Don in Russia, which can be easily supplied to the Donbass, the Russian separatist provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk, since, 19, since 2014, the Russians have largely controlled Luhansk and have a foothold in Donetsk, and they're going to continue through the Donbass. They want to link up with their gains in the Sea of Azov from the first time, take Mariupol, which is holding out, and link up with Crimea, which they've held from 2014. This would now be a land bridge. Further in a perfect world, Putin wants to take this success and move on to have a Nova Russia, a new Russian empire, still having strategic depth, back to our old czarist plan, but a contiguous, limited strategic depth that would merely link the Russian-speaking people in the Donbass, the Crimea, around the Sea of Azov, with people in Transnistria, the sliver of Russian-speaking separatism in Moldova. They'd trample over Odessa doing so. If they were to manage this still grand plan, they would leave Ukraine a rump state, landlocked, a mendicant, a destroyed area, but they would have achieved a major gain of uniting all Russian-speaking peoples under a new czarist empire and have strategic depth. So they've taken that old plan that we talked about of the need for strategic depth as part of making Russia great again, and they've adapted it to what they've learned from the first phase of the war. Keep the logistics simple keep the military planning simple. Under General Alexander Dvornikov, they now have one commander and not three. Keep the military planning simple and move forward in this limited but still rather overwhelming way of recreating a Russian-speaking empire. And this is how the Russians have adapted their war aims to fit what they've learned from their first failed round. But Putin still thinks he can win. He has a majority of troops in the area of about three to one, uh, which is the minimum he needs to push ahead. The military rule of thumb is for an offensive. You need to have three attackers for every defender. They just about have that. And economically, it's clear Russia can continue. The new estimate is up for another two years with the rise in oil prices around the world. And even with dislocation, they can continue for two years. Our firm said two to three, so we're happy with that recent affirmation of our prognostication. And on this new war aim, this tailored war aim, which takes the old czarist war aim and tailors it to what they've learned, you see the plan for Nova Russia. And indeed, Putin has moved to create false flags in Transnistria, in Moldova, and to move forward in this manner. But he still thinks he can win. He's adjusted his war aims based on the first round, but still thinks he can have strategic depth in Nova Russia. And if indeed he does this, that would constitute, in Putin's eyes, victory. And certainly in the oligarchs and the elite in Russia would consider that a win. And so this is fine with Putin. He still thinks he can win. So look for the May 
Day Parade not to be one of the end of the campaign, but to be one of the beginning of this new tailored war aim that he has to protect Russian speakers all the way along the coast of the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. This geostrategically would leave a rump Ukrainian state. This is a change in the plan, but a weak, destroyed state, and with Nova Russia, a new great goal. So look for Putin in the May Day Parade, if I'm right, to really begin to market this new approach. This isn't the end. This is the beginning of the second phase, despite what so many wishful thinking European commentators might have you believe. On the other hand, the Ukrainians think they can win as well, and even more their patrons, the United States, do. Um, in a recent meeting in Ramstein, Germany, of the various Ukrainian allies, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin made this pretty clear when he said the goal isn't simply now to check the Russian advances, which it initially was. That was the best case scenario. And, and to leave Ukraine a sovereign, democratic, state, Western-looking in output, which was a forlorn hope, that's all now baked into the cake. Instead, the plan is to further degrade Russian capability. That one more failed assault, that's right. Whatever happens in the Donbass will determine the outcome of the war now. One more failed Russian assault will leave the Russians unable in this two-year time frame to pursue any other form of meaningful offensive. And so the goal is to begin to give the Ukrainians different sorts of weapons, weapons that are not just defensive in nature. One thinks of the Javelin anti-tank missile supplied so effectively by the Americans as a good example of this. It isn't just to knock out tanks in a defensive way so the Ukrainians can hold their ground as they did north of Kiev, but to begin to give them offensive weaponry so they can not only hold their ground, but someday take back ground in the Donbass, reuniting this with the rest of Ukraine. And you see this in the Ukrainian calls increasingly impatiently for armored vehicles, for again, for weaponry such as fighter jets and artillery. And indeed, the Biden administration and much of the rest of the world, even a recalcitrant Germany, being led kicking and screaming to supply kind of anti-tank materials and, and to give them armor, that you begin to see these old tanks, Soviet-era tanks from Eastern Europe and even newer American tanks, ammunition, fighter planes are back on the agenda, but armored vehicles and artillery so that the Ukrainians can eventually pursue offensive capabilities. Well, this is a dramatic change in the Ukrainian and Western war aims as well. It's not merely to defend what existed before the Russian invasion. These things are now offensive in nature. Tanks um, certainly are, ammunition and artillery to retake territory down the road. This is not the, a side that thinks it's losing, that after stopping the Russian blitzkrieg early on in February, March, now the West and the Ukrainians are talking about giving weaponry to retake territory. And the Russians, particularly Foreign Minister Lavrov, is right when he says that NATO now sees this as a proxy war, that the goal isn't just to halt Russian aggression, but to degrade Russian military capability so they cannot do this again. This is an expansion of the original aims of the West of merely leaving the Ukrainians in place, which, remember, was a forlorn hope that the CIA, uh, most the Secretary of Defense, most Western analysts, almost everybody in Europe, 
thought that Zelensky would be gone. And in fact, when the CIA offered to extricate Zelensky, he famously said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Well, now everyone agrees with him and is supplying him with ammunition. But this is a real change in, in procedure because people have the idea the Ukrainians can actually win the war and so they're being supplied with offensive weaponry. So on both sides, the war aims are evolving and neither side thinks it's losing. And because neither side thinks it's losing, this war has an awful long way to run, that there are certainly months and months ahead, as we predicted early on. I'm delighted to say the firm keeps its almost perfect record of analytical prognostication. And again, we should all be judged by our call record. Mr. Bremer, do you hear me out there? We should be judged by the work that we do. I have that revolutionary meritocratic view and by this, I'm proud as punch of our firm and the rest of the firms that we deal with really ought to have a look in the mirror. Because again, there's a lot of wishful thinking around this, that because both sides believe they can win and have adjusted their war aims accordingly, this war has months, if not years, to run. Certainly the rest of this year, you can bake in that this fight over the Donbass will continue. It's only when one side realizes that it's losing that it's going to lose, that you're going to see anyone go to the table. Diplomacy isn't some magical thing done in a vacuum. It only occurs, and there's only successful negotiation, when the facts on the ground militarily impel a solution. And neither side is there yet, as both sides think they are winning. And as long as they think they are winning, the war will continue. And that's the takeaway at the moment, that the war aims are evolving and the war will continue, certainly through the end of the year, if not longer. The key fact now is the second phase of the Donbass. Only when one side has definitively defeated the other, or there's a stalemate that then other then recalls both sides to remake their war aims, remake their geostrategic calculations, that would mark a change too. But short of that, this one has a long way to run. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed our Around the World in 20 Minutes, our quick take on how things in the Ukraine are changing, the war aims on both sides are evolving, and there's certainly an awful lot more war to come as a result of this. And while that's a dreary conclusion, the only way realism works is see to the world as it is, as Edmund Burke said, warts and all, and then try to make it better. So this one has a long way to go. Thank you very much for those of you who've subscribed. We are incredibly appreciative of that this podcast and indeed John's newsletter, our little local newspaper to the world, is booming. And please do subscribe if you've enjoyed this. On Monday, we give you the foreign policy vlog. Tuesday, the culture. We're looking at Sergio Leone movies. Next up, a few dollars more after we just looked at Fistful of Dollars. Around the World in 20 Minutes is the flagship of our newsletter. Every Wednesday, we have a look at political risk in the world. Thursday is my friend JL Writer and the Culture section. Uh, and Friday, Publius has already gotten me his column for the week where we look at the politics. If you enjoy this cutting edge approach of Substack where content providers directly work with you, our community, please do give. We're asking only $70 a year, which is $7 a month. It's a very small price to pay $7 a month for this unique uncensored, unfiltered approach, which has been proven right in political risk terms time and time again. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of being part of this community. So please do give so we can continue to devote so much time to getting it right for you. Thanks very much.